I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. As you do that, uh, let me just give a brief disclaimer this morning. Uh, Someone should have warned me about the allergies around this place and the the pollen uh, before I came. If it looks like I'm weeping throughout the sermon, that's probably because I am. Uh, I don't know yet that it'll be related to the fact that I'm emotional about the text or what is going on here. It might just have to do with the pollen. Uh, So I woke up this morning and my eyes were just, I mean, just pouring. And so uh, I've been taking the, the local honey that some of you gave me and I've been doing the allergy medicines too. It's just sometimes it just hits you. So um, having said that, I am looking forward to getting into God's word this morning and working through uh, another text. It's a short text, but it is on mission, and I want to take our time considering it because it's talking about the way Jesus Christ engaged others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, as we go through this text in God's plan, uh, the next text in Mark's gospel, Mark two thirteen through 17, Uh, will give us what I'm calling uh, the way of the master. That is one way that Jesus engaged the lost for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. About two years ago, I remember going through the gospels and looking to see how did Jesus evangelize. So I read through the gospels, I took notes. Every time I saw Jesus evangelizing someone, I took note, I wanted to learn And this is actually one of those texts. We'll see one way that Jesus engaged others for the sake of the gospel this morning. And I'm convinced that Jesus' methods in this text will greatly challenge us today. This is a passage about Jesus' firm commitment to take the gospel to the lost. And it's a passage where he is challenged by some who are concerned with his methods of engaging the lost. To be clear this morning, I think this text is going to challenge us for two reasons. I think it'll challenge us because we probably fall short of Jesus' methods in evangelism. We fall short of Jesus' methods and his plans of doing evangelism. And then two, to make matters worse, we probably identify more with the concerns of those who question him. So as we go through the text, I know that God will use this greatly in our our lives. Having made those initial comments, I want to dive right into Mark 2, 13 through 17 to look at the way that Jesus demonstrates his authority. Here he demonstrates his authority by breaking scribal rules about normal social interaction with outcasts and sinners. This paragraph divides very easily into two stories that are woven together by Jesus' interaction with a man by the name of Levi. And so as we start into this, let's look at the first section, verses 13 and 14. Look in your Bible at verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. In verses 13 and 14, we have the call narrative of one of the 12 disciples. This call is similar to the call that Jesus gave to the first four disciples that we found in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus goes to four men, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're, they're fishermen, and he 
calls them, and they respond immediately. Uh, In that text, in chapter 1, it was a call of four fishermen. In this text, Jesus is going to take a few steps down the social ladder and call someone who is a tax collector. Now, before we look at his occupation and his social status, I want to look at the man, his identity, who Jesus calls here. It's, his name is Levi. Levi, I actually warned my son. He's going to hear his name about 75 times in the sermon this morning. His name is Levi. And what we know about Levi is that Levi becomes one of the 12 disciples. If you were to compare this gospel to the other gospels, you would see that Levi is another name for a gospel or a, a disciple by the name of Matthew. This is Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, Matthew who wrote the first gospel. And so Levi uh, here is is one of the 12 disciples. He is, uh, the text says, he is the son of Alphaeus, which if you look at that closely and you compare that with other scripture, you're gonna see that Levi is probably the brother of another disciple by the name of James the Lesser. James, in another text, is also called the son of Alphaeus. So unless they're two different Alphaeuses, is that that plural for Alphaeus? Alphaeuses. Unless they're two different Alphaeuses, then we're looking at another set of brothers. So if this is true, this means that there are three sets of brothers among the 12 disciples. Peter and Andrew, James and John, and then Levi and James the Lesser, sons of Alphaeus. Having looked at his identity, we look a little bit more at where this text has Levi when he's called. Levi is sitting, the text says, at a tax booth. Now, other gospels make it clearer that Levi is not just sitting at a tax booth. Levi is a tax gatherer or a tax collector. And so I want to just take a few moments to talk to you about tax gatherers or collectors in the first century. Tax collectors were probably the most hated group of individuals among the common people in Israel in the first century. The the phrase in the ESV is translated here, the the word is translated tax gatherer, tax collector. In some Bibles, it's translated publican. Uh, But what the word speaks of is someone who either collected taxes or tolls, okay? So the word is general and broad enough that it could speak of someone who would invoke taxes upon the common people for the Roman government. Or, in this case, I think, it perhaps is even better to see Levi more as not a tax gatherer, but as a toll collector. Someone who would invoke tariffs or tolls on people who were selling or gaining items. This being by the Sea of Galilee, it's probably that Levi is setting up a booth to collect money off of what Fisher what, you know, the, the fish that fishermen would make, or perhaps a road that they would be traveling on to get to the Sea of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. So Levi, in Mark chapter 2, is a, is a toll collector. Okay. These collectors were especially known for their unfair or unchecked practices of, of laying heavy tariffs on the people. I mean, so citizens would pay the tax or the toll, and then on top of the toll that was due to the Roman government, these collectors would put their own commission. So they put their own personal commission on top of that, and if you read first century literature, you see that it, this, this 
could be anywhere from 10 to 15% more than what the city of Rome and what the Roman government would charge them. These toll collectors were, were hated. Um, they were hated as well for the means that they sometimes resorted to to get their money. In some cases, we have actual record of toll collectors or tax collectors you know, acquiring their money through uh, torture or abuse. Okay, so they're a hated people. They're so hated in the Jewish Talmud, it says that tax collectors are, are to be lumped together with murderers and thieves. William Lane describes the fact that they were hated for two reasons. He said they're hated because they did not eat food in a state of ceremonial cleanness and because they uh, failed to separate the tithe. Okay, so there are multiple reasons why these tax collectors were hated. Unfair, unchecked practices, you know, really soaking it to you so that they could have their own elaborate place. But then also, they're not following the Mosaic law at all. They can care less about the Mosaic law, okay, and doing that. So they were despised, outcasts of the Jewish people, especially among the religious elite of their day. But Jesus calls and Levi responds the way the other disciples responded. He immediately gives up his occupation and he follows Jesus Christ. But Jesus's controversial ministry to outcasts does not end in this text with the call of Levi, a sinner and tax collector. Let's look at verses 15 through 17 to see another way that Jesus ministered to outcasts. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were, there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Not only did Jesus call an outcast, he ate with outcasts in verses 15 through 17. I want to walk us through this story one verse at a time, and I want to draw out a few ideas from the verses. I think they're very important for us to look at as well. So in verse 15... The story begins with Jesus eating with outcasts, and the text does a very good job of explaining the scene. Now, one of the most difficult things for you to figure out this little wee passage is verse 15 uh, would be the pronouns. It says that he reclined at table in his house. And so some of the questions related to this verse and properly interpreting it would be, who does uh, Mark mean with the pronouns, or who's he referring to? First of all, he. It becomes clear if you keep reading in the very next verse that he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is reclining a table in, in a house somewhere, but where? And that gets us to the second pronoun, in his house. Okay, and there are a few different possibilities as to where Jesus might actually be here, and I think it'd be good for us to look at it closely. Uh, the possibilities would be this. Is he in his own house? Is Jesus in his own house? Or is he in the house of Simon Peter? Or is he in Levi's home? Okay, looking at the greater context, my 
my initial reaction or thought would be, in looking at this text, that he might be in the house of Simon Peter, the same house where he had performed a healing of the paralytic man. Remember last week, we talked about like ceiling tiles coming down and, and Jesus was in a house. Look at chapter two, verse one, for instance. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I said, you could translate that he was in a house. And so if I'm just looking at the greater context here, I might be tempted to think that the house is the same house that Jesus had just come from, okay? However, there's another text of scripture that would lead us in a different direction. And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter five for a moment. And we're gonna answer this question by comparing scripture with scripture. So go to Luke chapter five, verses 27 through 29. You see what we're doing. So Mark says he was in his house. Who is his? Whose house are we talking about? Well, in Luke, when he tells the story of the calling of Levi, he goes, he continues as well, and he talks about this feast, and he describes it in a little bit uh, uh, more descript way. Look at uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Okay, so if I use scripture to interpret scripture, it seems as if Luke is telling us that was in the house of Levi. Okay, so the way it goes, Levi's in a tax booth. Jesus calls him to be a disciple. And I think as a means of celebrating what Jesus has done and calling him, Levi does a natural thing. Levi invites Jesus to his own home for a feast. You got it? So let's go back to Mark chapter two for a moment. So I think this is in Levi's home. After receiving the invitation from Levi, Jesus goes and he makes himself at home. In verse 15, it says that he reclined at table, reclined at table with them. This was a a common Greco-Roman practice that the Jewish world had just begun to embrace. And so Jesus is kind of, he's like half upright, half half laying down toward the table in the center of of the room, enjoying a meal with Levi's friends. As we talk about Levi's friends that are are there, we see that he is surrounded by infamous sinners and social outcasts. They as well recline with Jesus and his disciples at this place. So one of the things I wanna point out here is that Jesus is comfortable with this rung of people, with this hodgepodge of people and you know, some of them even representing perhaps the dregs of the society in the first century. So as we look at this text, I I learned from Jesus' example here. Now, there's one more thing about verse 15 I would point out, and that is the end of the verse. It says, for there were many who were following him. And while the word many, again, is a bit difficult to know exactly what he's talking about, I think the best interpretation of this would be there were many of these kind of people who were following after Jesus. I'm not here to tell you that every one of them had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ by this point, but but Jesus was attracting people from 
every sort of background and social condition. And there were many of these tax collectors and sinners who were following him around. Having said that, I think Jesus' example here is amazing. This is the way of the master to interact with lost people in a casual way over a meal. A few years ago, Carissa and I were invited to a party by, to, to, to accompany two of Carissa's friend, two of our friends, another couple. The couple was saved, and the party was going to be at the home of an unbeliever. And so as I reflected upon that this week, there were a few things about that party that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. First of all, it was a costume party, okay? And I don't do particularly well at those costume parties. I, one reason I don't, well, there's a few reasons. One, I'm too big. You can never, you always know who I am. Uh, two, though, uh, I hate to take the time to come up with a costume. Okay, now, I know that what's probably going to happen is you're all going to create little costume parties around the congregation and invite me to do this. I'll just get one outfit and just work it around the congregation. So, like always, it came the day of the party, and I didn't have a costume. And so my loving wife, Carissa, bailed me out. She, she went to Walmart looking for something. I remember she called, and she said, I have found the perfect costume for you. It is an orange prison outfit. It's going to go over really well. So, I consented because I didn't have anything else in mind. But, but let me tell you. Okay, you really should not believe the label that says one size fits all. Okay. Uh, unless that is, we're now giving orange capri outfits to prisoners. Uh, the, the, the suit was actually so tight, I remember when I got into the minivan, I actually had to unzip the suit so I could sit down in the front seat of the minivan. So... Needless to say, I was a bit uncomfortable. Uh, But to be honest with you, that wasn't the only thing that made me uncomfortable. As we arrived, I found out quickly that the four of us were the only believers at the party. We showed up, me and my orange capris, and were immediately thrust into conversations with complete strangers who knew nothing about me or my confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I remember thinking, this is what I thought, I remember thinking how weird Carissa's friends must be to want to go to something like this. Dressed up in these costumes, no one knows, you don't know anyone, and now you're going to have to carry on conversations with strangers. However, as I reflected upon that, I realized that they were not the weird ones. I was. I was the one teaching at a Christian college. I was the one attending a Christian seminary. I was the one preaching in a Christian church, and I was the one that was exclusively socializing with Christian friends. And men and women, may I tell you, if we are not careful, we will function as one author said. He read, I read him this week, he says, We often cocoon ourselves in our own Christian environments. 
Yet Jesus did not cocoon himself. He made himself at home with tax collectors and sinners. Notice that this leads to a response from the scribes. The response of the scribes is in verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, to make sense of this part of the text, we have to deal with that first phrase, the scribes of the Pharisees. And I want to just take a moment to help you understand a little bit of the background of the Gospels in these two groups that Jesus is interacting with here. First of all, the scribes. The scribes were another important group in the first century, but they were not like the tax collectors in that it's not that people hated the scribes. Actually, they were greatly revered for their godliness and understanding of the scriptures. The scribes, the word scribe would be used of the religious experts in Judea. The word originally meant one who wrote letters and it spoke of people in the first century who'd have the job of copying important documents or or drafting important documents for Israel. the, The job description of a scribe, however, blew wide open when an Old Testament scribe by the name of Ezra was more than a copyist. If you go back to the book of Ezra, you see that Ezra was a ready scribe in that he uh, basically, what, what Ezra did, he not only copied the scriptures, he knew them well and he interpreted them for the people. And so by the time the first century comes along, the scribes are seen as experts in understanding and interpreting the law. They were the scholars or the teachers of the people. And so people greatly revered them. As a matter of fact, I used to teach a class on the Gospels, and I would talk about some of the stories we know, of the, the reverence that people would have for these scribes. There was a scribe by the name of Rabbi Akiba who was so well-respected among the people for his, his powerful teaching, his understanding of the Old Testament Scripture, that upon one occasion, his wife and his father-in-law kissed his feet reverently upon the completion of his lecture. There was another rabbi by the name of Rabbi Ishmael who was so revered. On one occasion, his mother pleaded with the people who were there to drink the water that was used to wash the feet of Rabbi Ishmael. Now, these revered teachers could align with the Pharisees or another group of religious people we won't talk about today, the Sadducees, or they could be independent of either group and affiliating with either one. So uh, in this case, though, the phrase says the scribes of the Pharisees. So the scribes we're talking about here are in alliance with another group we'd call, the text calls the Pharisees. And so I just want to look at the Pharisees for a moment. Now, the Pharisees are a very prominent group in the New Testament. The word Pharisee in singular or plural is used over 100 times in your New Testament scriptures. So if you're reading through your Bible, you're trying to make sense of the Gospels, you need to know who the Pharisees are. The word Pharisee means separated one. And uh, the Pharisees were the professional practitioners of the law. While they would do some teaching, their area of experience and expertise would be more with how does the law apply to daily life. They were the practitioners. And so the Pharisees and and some Jewish religious people with them developed an entire code of oral, spoken, 
laws, rules, and regulations that they connected with the Mosaic law, okay? Because the Pharisees are the experts in how do we actually practice the law? I mean, how many steps can I go? You know, what can I do and can I do on the Sabbath? When it gets practical, what does that look like? And so they developed the oral law, which becomes important for the Jewish people as well. It's, it's, later on, it's added into their Talmud, okay? Now, the oral law is, is, is not based upon, necessarily based upon principles found in the Old Testament, but these are rules and regulations that would act like a fence, a perimeter around the law that would keep you from ever disobeying the law, that would keep the Pharisees from disobeying the law or keep other people from disobeying the law. Okay, so in this text, what you have is you have scribes of the Pharisee party who are uncomfortable with what Jesus is doing, eating with sinners and tax collectors in Levi's home. Okay, now, I think it's very important to see Jesus doesn't disobey the law of Moses here. He's disobeying those scribal and pharisaical practices that are built around the law. Now, the scribes had many concerns about eating in a situation like this. They would be concerned about the cleanliness of the hands and the utensils that were used. They'd be concerned about the food. They they would want to make sure in some way or another that the food was properly uh, selected, prepared, and presented. I mean, for a Pharisee or Jewish person to really eat meat, if if there's meat at this banquet, it would have to be slaughtered in the proper Jewish ceremonial way. The blood would have to be drained properly and everything. So they would be concerned with that. They would be concerned with those present at the meal. Okay, so you can have a meal in a decent location and be, everything be okay, but if there are unclean people in the room, you still have a problem for the Pharisees. And then they would be concerned with the building itself. For instance, the Talmud says this. It says, if a tax collector entered a house, all that was in the house became unclean. The Talmud says. So the scribes object. But Jesus answers. That's verse 17. And Jesus' answer is twofold. He leads with a proverb that he gives to them, and then he gives a very important personal statement regarding mission. So look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, the proverb is pointed. Jesus says that well people don't need a doctor. It's sick people who need a doctor. I mean, imagine a doctor who refuses to meet his patients. Of course, if if a doctor refuses to interact with his patients, he would not be of any help to those people who really need him. And so Jesus uses this proverb to explain, you know, he's like the doctor, and he needs to minister to sick people. But then he gives this personal statement that is quite direct. Jesus explains that it's his desire not to call righteous people, but sinners, as we come to this part of the, the proverb and then the personal statement, it becomes a little bit more difficult because I think, I think Jesus is not necessarily at this point trying to define who the righteous are, okay? The way I would probably interpret this text is the way that actually some translations take it, that Jesus is saying, I did not come 
to work with the so-called righteous, the people who are righteous in their own eyes or convinced of their own righteous acts. Okay, But I'm here to minister to those who are sinners, to those who recognize their need of a Savior. Now, Jesus also here does not tell us exactly what he's calling them to, the way Mark has it, at least. I did not come to call sinners, or the righteous, but sinners, okay? Now, if you go to the other text that we read earlier in Luke, you see that Luke tells us exactly what Jesus was calling them to. For in the other text, it says, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance, to repentance. And this lines up very well with Mark's gospel as well, because in Mark chapter one, when we hear about Jesus preaching you know, as he starts his ministry, it says that he, he preached repentance and the fact that you needed to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we have in this text is Jesus calling these sinners, these friends of Levi, these tax collectors, to repentance. Now, there's one more thing I want you to consider before we close this morning, though, and, and that is I want to reflect upon the timing of his eating and his calling here. And I want to make a statement that uh, I want you to think about this week, and I want you to think about its ramifications for your life. It's my opinion, after studying this text, that Jesus did not require repentance before he shared a meal with the lost. Jesus did not require repentance before he shared a meal with the lost. No, he, he eats so that he might call to repentance. In other words, Jesus enjoys casual interaction with lost people so that he might later call them to repentance. He will call them to repentance. That's like the whole purpose for why he's come, calling people to repentance, salvation, but he does not require it before he eats with them. And I think that Jesus is a good example for every one of us. Men and women, I think that many of us think wrongly about lost people. We think that they need to repent before we spend time with them. Our concerns for worldliness and holiness often cause us to retreat from the loss and criticize anyone who engages the lost in these sort of ways. And so this text challenges us challenges us, as I said at the beginning, because we fall short of Jesus' way of evangelism. And it challenges us because we identify most closely with the concerns of the scribes when others do engage the lost like this. As we close, let me ask you a, very, a few pointed questions. Do you eat with sinners? I mean, non-sanctified ones, that is. 
Do you eat with sinners? Do you spend time with people who do not know Christ? Do you love sinners? Care for them? Reach out to them? And serve them as Jesus would? I want to call each family unit in here, even if it's just one person. Each family unit to consider now and evaluate your own home. Perhaps it'd be good for fathers to lead in these sort of pursuits, but would you determine to have a meal at your home with your lost neighbors? Would you do that this week? I mean, like, do it, and then tell me how it goes. You say, well, I'm, I'm super busy. I, you just don't understand. I'm like crazy swamped right now. This is like the worst time. Okay, I'll be flexible. Put it on your calendar, like a month down the road. But when it's on your calendar and when that day comes, don't back away from it. Perhaps you can determine to take your coworkers up on an inv- invitation to join them for a meal at their house this week. And then look for opportunities in the meal and after the meal to call them to repentance regarding their sins. Let's learn from the way of the master. Eating with outcasts as a way to get to mission. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this text of Scripture, we consider Mission Sunday. The emphasis this morning has been on our neighborhoods and our workplaces. And Father, there are people all around us who are lost. They have no idea what the Scriptures say about sin, the need for repentance and turning and believing on Jesus Christ to be delivered and freed from their sin. Father, they are sentenced to a place called hell for all eternity. And many times we live as if that truth isn't even really true. God, we we fail to live in light of what the scriptures say regarding repentance and belief and hellfire. And so, fathers, we consider our own neighbors and our coworkers this week, and people around us in community, in this community. I, I pray that you would burden our hearts to think about our neighbors to think about how we might engage them for the purpose of calling them to repentance. Lord, may this not just be something where we like have a meal with our neighbors and said, we we check off the box, we did it. But Lord, may we have a meal with them like Jesus did to call them to repentance. As we consider our own lives, perhaps many of us are not even good at interacting with lost people. Pray, Lord, that you would teach us. I pray that we would consider our own lives if we're insulated. And all of our interaction is always with Christians. It's always with Christians. I pray, Lord, that we would be broken, that we would be burdened, that we would know not only did Jesus have a mission, but he gave us a mission too. 
to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. I pray that you do a profound work and that I might hear about these meals and that meals that lead to clear plan of salvation being presented, gospel being presented, people coming to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do this for your own glory? Of course, we can stand up here, we can say all the right things, we can do all the right things, and nothing will happen unless the Holy Spirit burdens us and uses us. Lord, we pray this for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.